While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. I'm using a very different source for this particular podcast. Many of the facts that I'll relate to you come from the Canadian Encyclopedia entry for Ezra Allen Minor. He's better known as Bill Minor and better known in Canada. There's a restaurant chain in British Columbia known as the Keg Steakhouse and Bar that has a few drinks named after Miner, and more importantly, Bill Miner Pie. Google Bill Miner, and the top results are people hunting down or sharing the recipe for Bill Miner Pie. That fact isn't in the Canadian Encyclopedia. Miner was born in Bowling Green, Kentucky around 1847. Apparently, he worked in California as a cowboy at one point, then began turning to the more lucrative, but more dangerous, profession of robbing stagecoaches. The prisoner roles for San Quentin State Prison aren't available online and are way out in California, so I'm going to take the Canadian Encyclopedia's word when they say he was arrested and sent to that facility four times between 1866 and 1881, finally being set free in 1902. At that point, stagecoaches were becoming a thing of the past, and trains were becoming the best way for a robber to make a living. Miner and his gang would board the train and take control of the locomotive. Then they would separate the express car containing the gold, money, and mail, and send the rest of the train further down the tracks while Miner and his men emptied that express car. Think the robbery scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. His first attempt was in Oregon, where some of his gang were arrested and Miner escaped empty-handed. Apparently, he learned from his mistakes, and after moving to Canada, he and an associate, and maybe a few others, robbed the Canada Pacific Railway's Transcontinental Express. They got away with about $57,000 worth of gold dust money and United States bonds. Or $6,000, it depends on where you look. It's noted by the Canadian Mounted Police as the first robbery of a Canada Pacific train. They tried again in 1906, but botched it, escaping with only $15. An enormous manhunt using Canadian and American police searched for the gang, eventually locating and capturing them. One gang member was shot in the leg during the arrest. Miner was convicted of train robbery, and he was given a life sentence compared to some other train robbers I've looked up who got away with a lot more than $15, this does seem a little harsh. He was sent to the New Westminster Penitentiary, where he lasted about a year before breaking out. He disappeared and was never seen in Canada again. If you look up Bill Miner in the online version of the Canadian Encyclopedia, there's even a short but very well-made cartoon telling the story of the disastrous final robbery and capture. Jump ahead to 1911, and this is a quote from the Gainesville Times. On February 18, 1911, a group of bandits robbed a Southern Railway passenger train destined for New York. The train was stopped at White Sulphur Springs, about seven miles outside of Gainesville. 
We've discussed White Sulphur Springs in Episode 5, There Was a Town Here. The contemporary paper, the Gainesville News, called it a bold crime, netting the robbers nearly $1,000 and bemoaned the robbers' smearing of the county's former good name by saying, Guess the people of other sections of the country will be afraid of us hereafter. They will think we are heathen who need civilization and regeneration. Well... I mean, trains were getting robbed all over the country, and I don't think it really brings down the reputation of a particular region to have a train robbery. A manhunt was on, and after someone reported to the sheriff of Dahlonega that some unknown men were seen loitering around an empty building, the men were tracked to a farm about 13 miles from town. A farmer reported that three men were sleeping in his hayloft, and the bandits were quickly apprehended. One of the robbers identified himself as George Anderson of Nebraska, but a detective quickly realized that the man they had in custody was none other than Bill Miner. He was tried in Hall County and sentenced to 20 years. He started on a prison farm in Newton, but being in his early 60s, he claimed he couldn't keep up with the demanding labor, so he was transferred to the prison in Milledgeville, where he promptly escaped. He was captured, but escaped again. The story is that he ingested a quantity of swamp water when a boat he was using to flee pursuit was capsized, leading to acute and fatal gastritis. He died and was buried in Milledgeville in 1913. He's something of a folk hero like Billy the Kid. There are a few books and a movie based on his life, his biggest claim to fame being that he was the first to shout hands up at the start of a robbery. At his last conviction, he was quoted as saying, When one breaks the law, one must expect to pay the penalty. He paid the penalty by spending about half of his life in prison and never once got a slice of Bill Minor pie. A good story about crime and trains is often the perfect segue for a story about crime and trains, even though you may have heard this one before. But it's a good story, even better with some first-hand details published in 1970 in the Railway and Locomotive Historical Society Bulletin. April 12th of 1862, the American Civil War was just about a year old, and a northwest-bound train pulled by a locomotive named the General left Atlanta at about 4 a.m. A little over an hour later, the train stopped at a site known as Big Shanty. It seemed there was a long, fairly steep grade that led to a temporary railroad construction worker camp. The Big Grade to the Shanties, later shortened to Big Shanty Grade, and then simply Big Shanty. The origin of this story seems a little too pat for me. I have a hard time believing origin stories, especially when it concerns nicknames that are clear and make perfect sense. It's just too easy. However, it makes sense that anyone who referenced the area would begin with the two obvious features, the long grade, work, and the shanties, rest and food. When you consider that messages were often transmitted by telegraph, it becomes very plausible that a tired key operator could shorten that place near the big grade with the shanties to simply Big Shanty. Today it's known as Kennesaw. This was where the crew left the locomotive and train to have breakfast. 
Waiting in the area was James Andrews, a civilian working for the Northern Army, and 16, 18, or 22 Union soldiers on a mission. They planned to steal a train and run it from Atlanta to Chattanooga, destroying telegraph lines, railroad switches, and bridges behind them. A Union army had designs on Chattanooga, and destroying this rail line would prevent the Confederates from sending supplies and reinforcements from Atlanta into the besieged city. John Rowland, superintendent of the Western and Atlantic Railroad, tried to explain the situation in two letters to the governor of Georgia, Joseph Brown. He explains that, 16 bridge burners took charge and ran at a rapid rate, tearing up the track and breaking down the telegraph lines in two places before they got to Etowah. This was a run of 8 to 10 miles. The train's conductor and a few other men first started running after the stolen train, then chased it on a handcar. At Etowah, they seized a small steam engine called the Yona and continued the chase. The raiders were continuing north on the general without being challenged or questioned by the railway authorities as they had cut the telegraph lines leading back the way they came. No one at Big Shanty was able to warn anyone ahead of the raiders. If they were questioned, Andrews simply explained they were a special train carrying supplies to Chattanooga, and they even sweated out a layover of over an hour in Kingston until the way was cleared of southbound trains. Leaving Kingston, they severed a rail behind them and continued north. The Yona passed through Kingston but couldn't continue on the damaged rail lines. On foot, the Southerners ran north and then boarded a southbound train. That's one of the reasons the general wasn't moving very fast. There were a lot of southbound trains on the line, and whenever one was coming up, the general would have to move over to a siding and wait for it to pass before they could continue going north. If they just went flat out up the tracks, they would attract attention and eventually run into a southbound train. Since the train they found was headed south, it was pointed south. The boiler was stoked, and this train named the Texas continued the pursuit north in reverse. Okay, good time to recap because these names get confusing. The raiders stole the general with three boxcars attached. The pursuers went by handcar to the Yona, to running by foot, to the Texas, which is traveling in reverse. The raiders were still trying to damage the tracks, but that was hard work and took time, something they didn't have with the Texas in hot pursuit. Also, it was raining, which ruined their chance to burn the wooden railway bridges after crossing them. The only real damage they were able to do was to cut the telegraph lines along the railroad's route. Eventually, a number of issues combined to end the locomotive chase. The general was, after all, a train and couldn't deviate from the track. Also, high speeds over the grades involved in the chase emptied the general of fuel, which in this case was wood. Just north of Ringgold, Georgia, less than 20 miles from Chattanooga, the train ground to a stop and the Union Raiders ran into the surrounding hills. Superintendent Rowland tells the governor that one spy was captured and took 150 lashes before disclosing there were 16 Raiders in all. Two days later, he reported that 15 of the scoundrels were well-ironed and in jail at Chattanooga, which was still in Confederate hands. James Andrews, being a civilian, was tried and hanged in Atlanta. He's now buried in the Chattanooga National Cemetery beneath a stone monument and a model of the general. About half of the remaining raiders escaped their imprisonment and returned safely to the north by different routes. The other half were exchanged for Confederate prisoners about a year later. 
I'm oversimplifying this part of the story. There are actually some pretty exciting escapes and pursuits in both Andrew's and the other Raiders' stories. And if you have a chance, they're worth reading about. The Raiders who were in uniform received a new decoration, the Medal of Honor, and some were even thanked by Abraham Lincoln personally. Okay, I have one more thing to wrap up our story of trains, robbery, and prison scapes. But first, I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast mostly centering on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And this is my summer project, but in the autumn, I want to see if I can come out with something a little Halloween-y. So if you have a ghost story, a UFO story, a sighting of Bigfoot, I would love to hear it. Movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. You can visit the General in Kennesaw and the Texas in Atlanta. One of the Raiders wrote a book about his experience, which became a runaway bestseller, then a Buster Keaton film, and later a Walt Disney Films production called The Great Locomotive Chase. This whole event took place a little further west than most of this podcast tales occur, so I'll wrap it up and bring it home by saying that the Walt Disney production was filmed on the Tallulah Falls Railway between Franklin, North Carolina and Cornelia, Georgia. On my desk next to my monitor is a railroad spike from the Tallulah Falls Railroad, and that's a topic I'm sure we will get to in time.